everyone, and welcome to this reading of the Fort Dodge Messenger. This is the Wednesday, December 28th edition. It's brought to you here on the morning of Thursday, December 29th. Hope you're having a great start to your day. This is Andrew Hupp filling in here on IRIS, the Iowa Radio Reading Information Service for the Blind. We are taking a look at the forecast before we get into the front page news here in this reading of the Fort Dodge Messenger. For this Thursday, you can expect a slight chance of rain or freezing rain between 9 a.m. and noon. That'd be this morning. Then a chance of rain later on. Areas of fog between noon and 4 p.m. Otherwise cloudy with a high near 37. Light and variable wind becoming northwest around 6 miles per hour in the morning. The chance of precipitation is 30%. So be careful if you are out and about. Again, a high of 37 degrees for today. For tonight, expect a slight chance of rain and snow before 9 p.m., then a slight chance of snow between 9 p.m. and midnight. Mostly cloudy with a low around 20 degrees, west winds up to 7 miles per hour, a 20% chance of precipitation. But again, for tonight, a low of around 20 degrees above. For your Friday, expect mostly sunny skies, a high near 35 degrees, west winds becoming south in the afternoon. For Friday night, expect mostly cloudy skies, a low around 26. And for your Saturday, expect mostly cloudy skies, a high near 38. As we get this reading of the Fort Dodge Messenger, Wednesday, December 28th edition underway. Some of the headlines, hike in the new year. Brushy Creek will be site of annual outing. Also, FDPD takes eye pledge. Officers work to prevent sale of tobacco to youths. And we also have a taking center stage with Ignatius Kirby. Time well spent. Kirby loves to be involved in a wide range of activities. These front page stories and more after that. But we started off with Hike in the New Year. Brushy Creek will be site of annual outing. This written by Kelby Wingert. And the headline photo shows Jeff Terry left following with Pup Fozzie as Pete Wilcox leads with Rossi. The local kennel club members try to get out regularly with their dogs, and New Year's Day 2021 was a perfect chance to do so, distance from each other. And that's a messenger file photo, and it shows them walking down the path. On either side of them is grass and brush that's uh, dormant. It's brown, but it's still very long, and the trees around them are covered in frost, the bare trees around them, and they are walking on a path that is covered in snow with their dogs. A very beautiful picture, actually. The Iowa Department of Natural Resources, the story begins, is encouraging Iowans to ring in 2023 with the great outdoors by visiting their local state parks on January 1st. In its 11th year, the DNR's first day hike challenge has more than 50 participating state parks and forests this year. Many of the parks will also offer guided hikes with park staff. In Webster County, Brushy Creek State Recreation Area will be host to a guided hike on Sunday afternoon. Hikers can meet at the Prairie Resource Center, 2820 Brushy Creek Road, at 1 p.m. We'll meet first and talk about hiking the trails at Brushy and answer any questions. That says Park Manager Amber O'Neill, who will be leading the hike. Hikers will then caravan to the trailhead about three miles away, she said. The trail is one of our flattest trails along the Des Moines River, so it'll be as easy as it can for having to go through snow, O'Neill said. Temperatures for Sunday are forecasted to be in the mid-30s, so there might be some snow melt, she said. 
Hikers are encouraged to wear waterproof boots and possibly ice cleats. The trail they'll be taking is about two miles long and expected to take one to two hours, O'Neill said. The trail follows a section of the Des Moines River, she said. Some of our normal hikers probably don't know about this trail. The Brushy Creek State Recreation Area has around 40 miles of trails, most of which are built for equestrian use, O'Neill said. That's why I'm always trying to help people find sections to do because some of them can be really long and have water crossings, she said. I think hiking is underutilized. The first inaugural first day hike was on January 1st, 2012, O'Neill said, and Brushy Creek was one of just a handful of state parks that participated. Since then, one or both of the state parks in Webster County, Brushy and Dolliver Memorial State Park, have participated each year. The 2022 first day hike was canceled due to dangerously cold temperatures. O'Neill said she thinks this New Year's Day tradition is a fun one. I love to talk to people and get excited about hiking and what you can do in the state parks in the winter, she said. Everyone's used to the summer activities, but you can come out and ski and snowshoe and hike. Look at the snow and the wildlife. O'Neill encourages regular summer hikers to come out on Sunday as well because the trails and sites look completely different without the vegetation and with the snow cover. There will be some really nice views of the Des Moines River and who knows what wildlife you'll see, she said. Between Friday and Sunday, park visitors at any of the more than 50 participating state parks can check in on the online state park passport for a chance to a two-night stay at a cabin at Pine Lake State Park near Eldora. Every check-in over the weekend counts as a contest entry. To find other locations of first-day hikes across the state, visit iowadnr.gov backslash firstdayhikes. Moving on now to more front page news. But before we do, I'm going to give you some more of these photos here shown. And uh, there are two. The first is of a little lady. She looks like she's holding a clump of snow with her, uh, what is that, an Australian Shepherd? It looks or that or a, maybe a Sheltie dog. Uh, Ash the Min oh, there we go. Ash the Miniature Australian Shepherd. Yes, it is. It's close. Watches Nash, age 10, is that little lady's name, play with a fresh powdery snow on New Year's Day 2021 at Brushy Creek State Recreation Area. And another photo shows ice fishers awaiting the first bites of 2021 on Brushy Creek, and they're out there in their pup tents ice fishing. FDPD takes I pledge. Officers work to prevent sale of tobacco to youths. The Fort Dodge Police Department has taken a pledge to keep tobacco, alternative nicotine, and vapor products out of the hands of Webster County's underage population. Known as iPledge, the program is a partnership with Iowa Alcoholic Beverages Division to educate local retailers and to enforce Iowa's tobacco, alternative nicotine, and vapor product laws. Since the program's inception in 2000, the statewide tobacco compliance rate has grown to 95%. By participating in the program, the Fort Dodge Police Department has committed to do its part to increase the compliance rate even more this year. I pledge places emphasis on retailer training. Clerks who successfully complete an online training course and then pass an exam will become I pledge certified. This allows a retail establishment to use an affirmative defense against a civil penalty if the certified clerk makes an illegal sale. 
iPledge's retailer training is a great way for clerks to prepare themselves to refuse illegal tobacco. Alternative nicotine and vapor product sales. The training also assists retailers to ensure they maintain a compliant and responsible establishment. Officers will also be conducting compliance checks on local establishments as part of the iPledge program. Underage customers, under the supervision of law enforcement officials, will enter establishments and attempt to buy tobacco, alternative nicotine, and vapor products. Clerks who make the illegal sale will be cited immediately. Criminal penalties for selling tobacco, alternative nicotine, and vapor products to an underage purchaser include a $135 fine for a first offense, $325 fine for a second offense, and $645 fine for third and subsequent offenses. However, handing out citations is not the intent of the iPledge program. By partnering with the Iowa Alcoholic Beverages Division, we hope to educate clerks and maintain a compliant retail environment in our community. We pledge to help keep tobacco, alternative nicotine products out of the hands of underage persons in Iowa. To take the iPledge training or search certification records, you can go to backslash backslash abd.iowa.gov backslash. And our final front page story is taking center stage with Ignatius Kirby. Time well spent. Kirby loves to be involved in a wide range of activities. This by Dana Becker. St. Edmund Sr. Ignatius Kirby enjoys spending time doing a wide range of activities. That includes being involved in the chamber choir and the musical with his Gale classmates, while also venturing to Fort Dodge Senior High to join the soccer program. In between, Kirby is a member of 4-H, where he was honored as the 2022 Webster County King while representing the cross-country, or maybe it's a CC sidekicks. Learning music and playing soccer games are the most fun I have had, Kirby said. I love soccer and music, so doing both helps keep me motivated and happy. Kirby feels staying active and broadening his interest has helped. Allow me to explore what I may be interested in at St. Edmund. He said, I hope people will remember me for my musical performances and also for my many abilities. He credits several people with helping motivate him along the way. I look up to all my 4-H mentors, past and present, Kirby said. That includes Lindsay, Deb, and Brooke. Some other role models would be my soccer coach and scout leaders, Mr. B, Mr. Kramer, and Mr. Kirby. I also look up to my past grandfather because he was a kind and hardworking man who never gave up. Kirby plans to attend Iowa Central in the fall for software design. That's our final front page story. Moving on now to page two. We have military police enforced driving ban in snow-stricken Buffalo. And the photo here shows Tommy Retzer, last name spelled R-O-E-T-Z-E-R, digs out his driveway on West Delavan Street in Buffalo, New York on Monday. That's where the dateline is at. This is an AP story. State and military police were sent Tuesday to keep people off Buffalo's snow-choked roads, and officials kept counting fatalities three days after Western New York's deadliest storm in at least two generations. 
Even as suburban roads and most major highways in the area reopened, Erie County Executive Mark Pullen-Cars warned that police would be stationed at entrances to Buffalo and at major intersections because some drivers were flouting a ban on driving within New York's second most populous city. More than 30 people are reported to have died in the region, officials said, including seven storm-related deaths announced Tuesday by Buffalo Mayor Byron Brown's office. The toll surpasses that of the historic blizzard of 1977, blamed for killing as many as 29 people in an area known for harsh winter weather. Greg Monnet, that last name spelled M-O-N-E-T-T, turned to social media to beg for help shoveling a 6-foot or 1.8-meter pile of snow from the end of his Buffalo driveway so he could get dialysis treatment Tuesday. This has been a nightmare, he said in an interview Monday. Power has been out for a time at his family's home, he said, so relatives ran a gas stove to keep warm, a practice he acknowledged was dangerous. We had to do what we had to do, said Monnet, age 43. We would have froze to death in here. His loved ones called 911 when his blood sugar dipped dangerously low and he nearly passed out Sunday night, but they were told it would take hours to get to the home, Monette said. He eventually recovered on his own. Officials have said at news briefings that it was impossible to respond to emergency calls at the time. Monette ultimately made it to the dialysis after climbing through the snow and having neighbors help dig out his buried vehicle, Sister Maria Monette said. A Facebook group originally created in 2014 when Buffalo was buried under deep snow has become a lifeline, seeking to help thousands seeking food, medicine, shelter, and rescue in the latest storm. Currently managed by five women, the group swelled to at least 68,000 people as of Tuesday. We are seeing a lot of desperation, said Erin Aquiliana, or I'm going to try to spell this out here, A-Q-U-I-L-I-N-I-A, Aquilina, uh, Aquilinia, I think is how it's said. Uh, Forgive my pronunciation there. Founder of the original group, that's what she is, in an online interview is where she made those comments. The National Weather Service predicted that as much as two inches more snow could fall Tuesday in Erie County, which includes Buffalo and its 275,000 residents. County Emergency Services Commissioner Dan Neverth Jr. said officials were also somewhat concerned about possible flooding later in the week when milder weather begins melting the snow. And from the files, it shows a picture of Fort Dodge of a Fort Dodge couple named Jerry and Linda Henderson posing with their perfect game pins. The pair both bowled 300 games in the same night and the same league, one of only four couples to have done so ever nationwide. The games were bowled on December 16, 2007 at Ridgewood Lanes in Fort Dodge. And moving to this date in history here on page two of the Fort Dodge Messenger uh, for December 28th. December 28th was the 362nd day of 2022. There are three days left in the year. As of this reading and broadcast of this Thursday morning, there would be two left. On December 28th, 2014, the war in Afghanistan, fought for 13 bloody years and still raging, came to a formal end with a quiet flag-lowering ceremony in Kabul. 
that marked the transition of the fighting from U.S.-led combat troops to the country's own security forces. On this date in 1895, the Lumaire brothers, August and Louis, or Louis, held the first public showing of their movies in Paris. In 1908, a major earthquake followed by a tsunami devastated the Italian city of Messina, killing at least 70,000 people. In 1945, Congress officially recognized the Pledge of Allegiance. In 1991, nine people died in a crush of people trying to get into a rap celebrity basketball game at City College in New York. Moving on now to page three. Another AP story. Serbs put up new roadblocks as tensions soar in Kosovo. Will this conflict be rearing its ugly head again? I guess we'll find out. This from Mitrovica, Kosovo, Dateline, Kosovo. It's an AP story. Serbs on Tuesday erected more roadblocks in northern Kosovo and defied international demands to remove those placed earlier, a day after Serbia put its troops near the border on a high level of combat readiness. The new barriers, made of heavily loaded trucks, were put up overnight in Metrovica, a northern Kosovo town divided between Kosovo Serbs and ethnic Albanians, who represent the majority of Kosovo as a whole. It was the first time since the recent crisis started that Serbs have blocked streets in one of the main towns. Until now, barricades had been set on roads leading to the Kosovo-Serbia border. Serbian President Aleksandar Vucic has said he ordered the army's highest state of alert to protect our people in Kosovo and preserve Serbia, he said. He claimed that Pristina is preparing to attack Kosovo Serbs in the north of the country and remove the force Remove by force, rather, several of the roadblocks that Serbs started putting up 18 days ago to protest the arrest of a former Kosovo Serb police officer. On Tuesday, Vucic addressed reporters together with Serbian patriarch Por Fergi, who was barred by Kosovo authorities on Monday from entering Kosovo and visiting a medieval Serb church there before Serbian Orthodox Christmas, which is celebrated on January the 7th. In his usual manner, Vucic blasted the West and Kosovo's ethnic Albanian authorities of plotting together to trigger unrest and kill the Serbs, who are manning the barricades. Their aim is to expel Serbia out of Kosovo with the help of their agents in Belgrade. He said, apparently referring to the rare opposition in independent media, which are critical of his handling of the Kosovo crisis and his increasingly autocratic policies. Nevertheless, he said that he is currently negotiating with European Union and U.S. mediators on preserving peace and finding a compromise solution for the current crisis. Serbian Prime Minister Anna Brnabic on Tuesday refused to comment on claims that Serbia had sent into Kosovo a number of armed men who are probably manning the barricades. I will not discuss that with you, she said, when asked by a reporter if she knows whether Serbia's armed forces were currently present in Kosovo. Kosovo officials have accused Vucic of using Serbia's state media to stir up trouble and trigger incidents that could act as a pretext for an armed intervention in the former Serbian province. Moving on now to page six, as we are uh, trying to scrape together some news here. 
Staff gives South Dakota governor flamethrower for Christmas. Well, how about that? South Dakota governor Christy Nome got a hot Christmas gift from her staff, literally. Nome's staff gave her a Pulse Fire LRT flamethrower with an engraved plate of the state motto, Under God, the People Rule. The Sioux Falls Argus leader reported Tuesday. A video posted to Twitter on Sunday shows Nome decked out in camouflage using the flamethrower to torching a pile. Uh, that'd be, that's written wrong. Using the flamethrower torching a pile of cardboard boxes on a snowy farm. She shoots a final spray of flames into the boxes, raises her arm with a flourish, and says, Boom! Perfect! According to Tennessee-based ammunitions company Mid-South Shooters, a Pulse Fire LRT cost about $650. Gnome spokesperson Ian Fury said no tax dollars went toward the purchase. The gift comes after a photo on Twitter showing Gnome holding a flamethrower with a caption, Is it too late to add something to my Christmas list? Went viral in 2020. Some critics on social media have complained that while Gnome was burning the boxes, media reports surfaced that thousands of American Indians on Rosebud and Pine Ridge reservations were trapped without heat during a fierce winter storm. Pine Ridge citizens had to burn clothes after propane delivery stopped and there was no firewood. At least one person, a 12-year-old Rosebud Sioux girl, died because she was unable to receive medical treatment. Fury noted that the State Department of Public Safety cleared roads on both reservations, coordinated transport for dozens of dialysis patients to Rapid City, helped stranded drivers, and delivered food, firewood, and propane to communities. Nome also declared a state of emergency and activated the National Guard to deliver firewood to the Rosebud and Ogallala Sioux tribes. Moving on to page 7. Crop Advantage Series will help producers make smart decisions in 2023. Programs to be held in Mason City and Webster City. Dateline, Clarion, Iowa. The 2023 Crop Advantage meetings will give producers a solid foundation of current research-based crop production information to help make smart, informed decisions for their farming operation. And one note on this story, one reader's note here. This is Andy. Uh, telling you there is no author on this story, none listed. So just so you know, I'm going to be reading this to you, but it does not give an author listed. The meetings are an opportunity for farmers and crop advisors to hear current research and crop production information from Iowa State University. Campus extension specialists, field specialists, and invited speakers will travel to Webster City on January 11th and Mason City on January 13th, providing updated management options and recommendations on crop production issues facing Iowa growers. Meetings include continuing education credits for Certified Crop Advisors, or CCA. All sites offer private pesticide applicator continuing instruction, which is included in the registration fee. There is no other program in our crop production education year where we are able to bring this many extension specialists together to sites across the state. We're excited to provide quality in-person education that farmers and ag retailers have come to expect. That said Angie Reich Hints, field agronomist with Iowa State University Extension and Outreach. 
The Webster City meeting will be held at Briggs Woods Conference Center on January 11th. Early registration is encouraged by January 4th, but walk-in registration is available at an increased fee. Highlights of this location include talks on tar spot, soybean gall midge, management for higher soybean yield and timber as a crop. The Mason City meeting will be at the Muse Norris Conference Center at the Northern Iowa Area Community College on January 13th. Early registration is encouraged by January 6th, but walk-in registration is available at an increased fee. Highlights of this location include Chad Hart, Extension Economist looking at the 2023 crop market outlook, tar spot updated phosphorus and potassium guidelines, and a DOT officer discussing road weights and DOT issues for the ag community. Our goal is always to prepare producers to manage potential issues when they arise or even before they arise by sharing the most up-to-date research knowledge from Iowa State University researchers. That said Reich hints. Each location's program is unique as content is driven by local needs and production issues. For additional locations, specific agendas, dates and times, and program details, visit www.cropadvantage.org. Early registration for each location is $75. Late registration made less than seven days prior to the meeting or on-site is $100. Registration includes lunch, private pesticide applicator recertification, and CCA credits. Online registration and additional information is available at www.cropadvantage.org. For more information, contact ANR Program Services at 515-294-6429 or ANR at iastate.edu or contact your regional Iowa State University Extension and Outreach Field Agronomist. And no, that's not a sponsored message here as we're approaching the halfway point of this reading of the Fort Dodge Messenger. Webster County Farm Bureau Honored for Excellence receives Outstanding County Farm Bureau Award. Webster County Farm Bureau was recognized as an Outstanding County Farm Bureau during Iowa Farm Bureau Federation's 104th annual meeting held December 6th and 7th in Des Moines. The outstanding designation is awarded to farm bureaus that find unique ways to share about today's modern agriculture, discuss important ag-related topics with elected officials, and support community members in need. As a grassroots organization, everything we stand for starts with the County Farm Bureau. That says Brent Johnson, Iowa Farm Bureau President. There's no doubt the collective year-round efforts of our members create a more vibrant future for agriculture, farm families, and our communities, he said. And the photo here shows Dennis Hetherington, Webster County Farm Bureau President, accepting the Outstanding County Farm Bureau Award from Brent Johnson, Iowa Farm Bureau Federation President. That was at the 104th annual meeting in early December. Moving on to an AP story out of Norco, California. 80-year-old California store owner who shot Robert dies. An 80-year-old Southern California liquor store owner who blasted a would-be armed robber with a shotgun has died, the store reported Tuesday. Craig Cope died Tuesday morning, and a memorial at Norco Market and Liquor will be held at a later date, according to a Facebook posting. It didn't mention the cause of his death. Cope was at the counter shortly before 3 a.m. July 31st in Norco in Riverside County when a man in a ski mask came through the door. 
pointing a rifle and demanding, hands in the air, hands in the air. Surveillance video showed Cope firing one blast from the shotgun. The gunmen fled. Surveillance cameras outside the store caught him screaming, he shot my arm off, he shot my arm off, as he got into a car and was driven away. I didn't have time to be afraid. After the car with four robbers inside pulled into the parking lot, and some got out wearing masks and gloves and holding weapons, he told KTTV TV. He was alone in the store. One robber came through the door with what Cope said appeared to be a semi-automatic rifle. The guy pointed the gun directly at me. It was him or me, he told the station. Four men were later arrested at a hospital where the wounded suspect was being treated. The getaway car was stolen in Las Vegas and contained stolen weapons, authorities said. And we are about at the halfway point here in this reading of the Fort Dodge Messenger. This is the Wednesday, December 28th edition. It's brought to you here on the morning of December 29th. If you're listening to Iris on the Air, iowaradioreading.org. You can find all these podcasts and more about what we do. All material heard here on Iris is intended solely for the use of the blind and print disabled. If you have any comments on this or any other IRIS program, please give us a call at 515-243-6833 or toll-free from across the state, 1-877-404-4747. Now we turn to today's obituaries. Actually, it'd be Wednesday's obituaries, but uh, we're running them for you here today on the air. Dennis E. Anderson of Humboldt. Dennis E. Anderson, age 79, of Humboldt, passed away Saturday, December 24th. 2022 at Bigford Cottages in Fort Dodge. Funeral services will be held on Saturday, December 31st at 10.30 a.m. at St. Mary's Catholic Church in Humboldt with burial to follow at St. Mary's Cemetery in Humboldt. Visitation will be held on Friday from 4 to 7 p.m. with a vigil prayer service at 7 p.m. all at Laufer's Weiler Funeral Home, Fort Dodge. Dennis Eugene Anderson was born June 15, 1943 in Humboldt. He was raised and educated there, graduating from Humboldt High School in 1961. On August 14, 1965, he was united in marriage to Diane Hoops at St. Mary's Catholic Church in Humboldt. They lived their entire lives in Humboldt, raising three children, Debbie, Darcy, and David. Denny worked as an accountant in various businesses in Humboldt, which included working with Dave Beardman, Mark Bransgard and eventually landing at Blacktop Service Company until his retirement, after 29 years of service there. Denny's faith was extremely important to him, and he was a very active member of St. Mary's Parish. He volunteered in various roles, including doing the church books and singing in the choir. He also enjoyed being active in the community by being a member of the Noon Kiwanis, Knights of Columbus, and singing in the community chorus for many years. Denny loved being outside, which included maintaining and keeping his, own, his lawn looking meticulous. However, his favorite activity was attending his children's and grandchildren's activities, usually letting them know he was watching with his special whistle. By working hard all his life, Denny instilled the value of a hard work ethic and the importance of family in his children. Denny is survived by his children, Deb married to Dave Place of Renwick, Darcy married to Craig Hick, Fear of Iowa Falls, and David married to Sherry Anderson of Rockwell City, along with grandchildren Jacob and Jessica Place, Cody and Zach Hickfear, and Courtney and Tori Anderson, great-grandchildren Kyra and Cohen Place, brothers Joe Anderson, Jim married to Janice Anderson, Andy married to Peggy Anderson, 
His mother-in-law, Vernice Hoops Wagner, nephew Todd, married to Melanie Anderson. Nieces Kelly Anderson, Megan Anderson, Carissa married to Mike Hansen, along with several great nieces and nephews and numerous other family and friends. He was preceded in death by his wife of 57 years, Diane, parents Jens and Fern Olson Anderson, brother Ronnie Anderson, father-in-law Bill Hoops, sister-in-law Pat Anderson, grandparents Sam and Christina Olson, and Anton and Petrina Anderson, niece Shanna Anderson, nephew Kirk Anderson, great-niece Hope Anderson, and other loved family members. In lieu of flowers, memorials may be sent to the Unity Point Hospice in Fort Dodge. We have a short obituary for Rosemary Weiss, last name is spelled W-E-I-S-S. Funeral services are 10.30 a.m. January 3rd, 2023 at St. Paul Lutheran Church. Visitation is one hour prior to church service, www.brucesfuneralhome.com. From there we go to Wendy L. Townsend, Wendy L., or as I should say Townend, Townend, T-O-W-N-E-N-D, age 51, of Fort Dodge, Iowa, died Thursday, December 22, 2022, at the Paul... La J. Baber Hospice Home. Private family services will be held at a later date. Memorials may be directed to the family. Arrangements are with the historic Bruce Funeral Home of Fort Dodge. To view a com- the complete obituary and leave online condolences for the family, please visit www.brucesfuneralhome.com. Next, we have Nick Siemens of Webster City, a massive Christian burial is at 1.30 p.m. Friday, December 30th, 2022 at St. Thomas Aquinas Catholic Church of Webster City, Foster Funeral and Cremation Center of Webster City in charge. Then we go to Duane Bachman. Duane Bachman of Auburn. Visitation is 4 to 7 p.m. Friday at the Lamp and Powers Funeral Home. Lamp spelled L-A-M-P-E. Lamp and Powers Funeral Home in Lake City with a 6.30 p.m. vigil service. Lamp and Powers Funeral Home of Lake City is in charge of these arrangements. We have another few death notices to bring you. Jerry Harrison, 7 p.m. Wednesday at St. Olaf Lutheran Church. Visitation is 4 to 7 p.m. on Wednesday at St. Olaf Lutheran Church. So that would have been... That would have been yesterday. Eileen Samuelson, 10.30 a.m. Thursday, that's today at Christ Lutheran Church. Visitation, 3 to 5 p.m. Wednesday, that was yesterday at Gunderson Funeral Home. Howard Lee Roy Sheely, 11 a.m. Friday at Gunderson Funeral Home. Visitation, 10 to 11 a.m. Friday at Gunderson Funeral Home. And then from Loffers, Weiler, and Seavers, I think is what you say. Okay. Another funeral home in Fort Dodge, Norm J. Pilner, age 76. Funeral services are were Wednesday at 10 or 1.30, 1.30 at the Loffersweiler Funeral Home. Visitation was at noon until the start of service. Wilbert Lewis Jr., age 65. The funeral is Friday at 11 a.m. at the Loffersweiler Funeral Home. Visitation one hour prior to the funeral service at the funeral home. So that would be at 10 a.m. on Friday for Wilbert Lewis Jr. 
Then we have Denny Anderson, age 79. Funeral is Saturday, 10.30 a.m. at St. Mary's Catholic Church in Humboldt. Visitation Friday, 4 to 7 p.m. at the Lawfers-Weiler Funeral Home in Fort Dodge. Vigil prayer service at 7 p.m. all at Funeral Home. And then we have Randy Powell, age 62. Service is pending. This is something very interesting. I don't see printed in many papers anymore, so we're going to be bringing this to you. News from the Magistrate Court. We have on Saturday a violation of parole. Matthew Ray Patton, age 40, of 1301 South 22nd Street. It was transferred to the parole board. Public intoxication. Charles Ray Galt, age 62, of 927 Central Avenue. Trial January 19th, 2023. Tuesday, we had a driving while barred. Annabelle Sue Roseberg, age 27, of 1641 8th Avenue, who failed to appear. A warrant has been issued. Domestic abuse, assault, causing injury, first offense from Sean Dwayne Owens, age 24, of Mason City. Preliminary hearing waived. Gary Gerald Beekman, age 59, uh, 321 K Street. Preliminary hearing January 6, 2023. We have an assault. Sean Dwayne Owens, age 24, of Mason City. Continued 180 days. Adriana Marie McFadden, 24, of 2173 Riverdale Drive, trial January 25th, 2023. Violation of a no-contact order. Casey Frazier, age 40, of Lehigh, failed to appear, warrant issued. Third-degree harassment. Eric Wayne Gamble, age 29, of 1428 4th Avenue North, $180.75 fine. Public intoxication, Eric Wayne Gamble, age 29, of 1428 4th Avenue North, two days in jail suspended, one year probation. Operating while under the influence, first offense, that's from Violet Marie Nelson, age 23, of 1564, 190th Street, preliminary hearing waived. Also, failure to maintain control, that would be for Violet Marie Nelson, age 23, 1564, 190th Street, continued 180 days. So those are from the Magistrate Court. A short story here before we go into the opinion section. Supreme Court keeps immigration limits in place indefinitely. Dateline, Washington. Supreme Court is keeping pandemic-era limits on immigration in place indefinitely, dashing hopes of immigration advocates who have been anticipating their end this week. In a ruling Tuesday, the Supreme Court extended a temporary stay that Chief Justice John Roberts issued last week. Under the court's order, the case will be argued in February, and the stay will be maintained until the justices decide the case. The limits, often referred to as Title 42, in reference to a 1944 public health law, were put in place under then-President Donald Trump at the beginning of the pandemic. Under the restrictions, officials have expelled asylum seekers inside the United States 2.5 million times and turned away most people who requested asylum at the border on grounds of prevention of preventing the spread of COVID-19. Immigration advocates sued to end the policy, saying it goes against American and international obligations to people fleeing the U.S. to escape persecution. They've also argued that the, that the policy is outdated as coronavirus treatments improve. The Supreme Court's decision comes as thousands of migrants have gathered on the Mexican side of the border, filling shelters and worrying advocates who are scrambling to figure out how to care for them. 
All right, moving on now to the opinion section here, the Fort Dodge Messenger, Wednesday edition. This is the Messenger editorial. A thank you for a job well done. Dedicated workers endured blizzard to serve others. Northern Iowa just endured an epic winter storm. Its remnants, in the form of snow and ice, are still all over the place. During the roughly three days the storm pounded the area, lots of people opted to stay inside, sipping their favorite hot beverage, listening to the wind howling, and watching the white stuff pile up outside. Doing so was a good move. But there are others among us who simply had to be out and about in the blizzard. Nurses and other medical professionals were among them. No matter what the weather is doing, hospital patients and residents of care facilities need attention. Also, paramedics and EMTs ventured out to treat and transport the sick and injured. Dedicated medical professionals persevered through the blizzard to make sure anyone who needed care received it. Another group of unsung heroes labored to make it possible for anyone to get anywhere in the snow. They are the men and women who drive snow plows. They are employed by the Iowa Department of Transportation, counties, and cities. Their mission requires them to maneuver big trucks and sometimes motor graders in the worst conditions an Iowa winter can produce. Then there are the law enforcement officers at all levels, state, city, and county, who were also out at all hours of the day and night to keep people safe. They came to the rescue of those who ignored their pleas to stay home and instead found themselves stranded along snow-covered roads. Tow truck operators also went above and beyond during the storm. They spent hours hauling vehicle after vehicle out of snow, drifts, and ditches. All of those groups performed vital tasks in horrendous conditions. They deserve the thanks and praise of all the rest of us. So the next time you are comfortable on the couch waiting out a winter storm, think of those who have to be out in it. And consider making their lives easier by staying home and staying safe. That's the Messenger editorial. Moving on to the sports section now. Purdy's success no longer a surprise. That's written by Josh Dubow, AP Pro Football Writer. Santa Clara, California is the dateline. When Brock Purdy stepped in as quarterback for the San Francisco 49ers, his early, su- his early success was initially seen as a surprise. Now that the last pick in this year's draft has kept up that level of play for three straight starts, it's becoming expected. The former Iowa State star joined some illustrious company with his third straight winning start with two touchdown passes, leading the 49ers to their eighth straight win in a 37-20 victory over Washington on Saturday. Purdy's play has ensured that the surging Niners, 11-4 in the record, have shown no signs of slowing down after turning the offense over to their third-string quarterback. San Francisco is assured of at least the number three seed in the NFC playoffs and still have a chance to move up if Minnesota and Philadelphia falter down the stretch. At this point, we know who exactly who he is, receiver Brandon Ayuk said about Purdy. Nobody's surprised anymore. We know who Brock Purdy is. He came out, played a great game, controlled the offense, controlled the huddle, controlled the game. Purdy's rapid ascent from an unknown Mr. Irrelevant to a key component to one of the NFC's most top contenders has been impressive. He threw two touchdown passes in a relief effort of a Week 13 win against Miami and then has won his first three starts, throwing two touchdown passes in each game. 
He joined Hall of Famer Kurt Warner as the only quarterback since 1950 to win their first three starts, while at least two touchdown passes each game. I still have that same fire and drive as before I wasn't playing, Purdy said. I want to go in and I want to prove to my teammates and earn the respect every play, every snap, every drive, that kind of mortality. So I just got to remind myself to not lose that passion and that fire, and that's, it's never easy. Purdy has made it look easy, taking advantage of an offense that features several star playmakers and an elite play caller in coach Kyle Shanahan. While Purdy's biggest responsibility is to get the ball into the hands of players such as Christian McCaffrey and former Iowa Hawkeye All-American George Kittle, he has shown an ability to stretch the field. He threw his third touchdown pass that traveled at least 25 yards downfield on Saturday to Kittle, one shy of the total amount of those touchdowns the Niners had as a team since 2020. Purdy to Kittle connection. Purdy has connected with Kittle for two touchdown passes in back-to-back games. Kittle has 10 catches for 213 yards and four touchdowns the past two weeks, giving him a career-high eight touchdown receptions on the season. Kittle is the first Niners tight end since the merger with back-to-back games with multiple touchdown catches. The last player to do it for San Francisco before Kittle was receiver, Terrell Owens, in 2002. Red zone offense, San Francisco got inside the 25 times Saturday and turned those trips into only one touchdown. They got stopped on fourth down from the 15 on opening drive and settled for three field goals in the second half, including on drives that started at the Washington 11 and 25 following turnovers. At any time you get the ball that much in the red zone and only have one touchdown to show for it, that was disappointing, Shanahan said. Well, Hilton makes quick spark with Dallas. This from Frisco, Texas is an AP story. T.Y. Hilton took his time before settling on Dallas in free agency after the receiver's 10-year run with Indianapolis ended. The 33-year-old wasted little time making an impact for the Cowboys. His first catch from Dak Prescott, a 52-yarder on third and 30 in the last week's 40-34 victory over Philadelphia. The game-altering grab at the fourth quarter with Dallas trailing by a touchdown could quicken the process of getting the speedy receiver acclimated with the Cowboys as the playoffs loom. Coaches have been telling me since I signed here that they were going to be taking it slow, be on a pitch count, Hilton said. Whenever they're ready to turn me loose, I'll be ready. Hilton debuted for Dallas 12 days after signing sitting the first game at Jacksonville before playing on Christmas Eve against the Eagles. It's not a stretch to say Hilton's first Dallas catch kept Philadelphia from clinching the top seed in the NFC, since it sparked a 13-0 finish for the Cowboys in the last half of the fourth quarter. The victory kept the defending NFC East champion Cowboys with an 11-4 record alive in the division race for a visit to Tennessee with a 7-8 record for Tennessee, That was on Thursday night. The Eagles can clinch the bye and the division with a victory over New Orleans on Sunday. For now, the 52-yarder caught in stride on a go-route is Hilton's only catch and came on one of his 12 plays. Both those numbers should go up and maybe quickly. Trust, Prescott said of what his first connection with Hilton could mean. Some could say it could be dangerous in the sense, 
But a guy that goes out there is able to make that play and knowing that he's going to make that play or it's going to be an incompletion, just that confidence. In college basketball, perfect spot. Gibb enjoying time with Simpson. And it shows St. Edmund graduate Andrew Gibb putting a basket for Simpson earlier in the season there during the game. Gibb is a junior in Indianola. It took Andrew Gibb a couple of years, but the former St. Edmunds All-Starter believes he has found his basketball home. Gibb, who left SEHS as the school's career scoring leader, has helped Simpson College get out to a fast start this winter, going 9-2 overall and 2-1 in the American Rivers Conference. The Storm recently picked up a pair of victories over Stevenson and Mus. Kingham during the Daytona Beach shootout, stretching their win streak to four in a row. A junior, Gibb has played in all 11 games, averaging 16 points per game on 50% shooting from the floor. He has made a dozen three-pointers, is shooting 92% at the free throw line, and is averaging over six rebounds and almost two assists per night. Things have gone pretty well, Gibb said. I think I've found a home. My teammates and coaches are a lot of fun to be around and believe in me, which makes the game so much easier. I had two years of eligibility left and thought if I was going to make a change and transfer, this would be the time to do it. I had a good relationship with the coaching staff when they recruited me in high school and they reached out. I went on a visit and knew it was the right fit. Gibbs spent... One season at Iowa Central before heading off to Briarcliff, where he played in 52 games over two years, scoring 168 points with 36 rebounds and 23 assists. Some people who have helped me along the way with adjustments would be my coaches and my roommate, Easton Darling, Gibbs said. Really, though, all of my teammates have helped. They have brought me into their family more than any team I have been part of. I'm very excited for the rest of the season and just seeing how it plays out. I think we have a lot of talented guys that are going to make the right decisions to help us win games. The Storm rank second in the conference at 81.8 points per game, with Gibb eighth in terms of individual scoring. He is also third in free throw percentage, seventh in three-point percentage, and twelfth in field goal percentage. Simpson returns to the court on Wednesday, January 4th, when they travel to Storm Lake to face Benavista in ARC play. The league tournament is scheduled for February 21st through the 25th. And in our local calendar in women's basketball, the Tritons are at Minnesota West at 6 p.m. Men's basketball, the Tritons are at Minnesota West at 8 p.m. Saturday, December 31st, women's basketball, Tritons versus North Dakota SCS in Worthington, Minnesota. That's at noon. And men's basketball, the Tritons are versus Riverland in Worthington, Minnesota at 2 p.m. Tuesday, January 3rd, 2023. And girls basketball, Gales is at Clear Lake at 6 p.m. And boys basketball, Gales is at Clear Lake at 7.30 p.m. On Wednesday, January 4th, 2023. And women's basketball, the Tritons are at Northeast at 5 p.m. And in men's basketball, Tritons at Northeast at 7 p.m. Moving on to Thursday, January 5th. In bowling, Dodgers versus Mason City at 3 p.m. Wrestling, boys and girls, Dodger versus Ankeny Centennial, Waterloo East at 5.30 p.m. Boys swimming, Dodgers at Mason City, 5.30 p.m. 
Wrestling. Gales versus Iowa Falls Alden at 6 p.m. Girls basketball, Dodgers at Sioux City East, 6.15 p.m. And boys basketball, Dodgers at Sioux City East at 7.45 p.m. In other college sports news, contrast and style, power versus speed, Michigan TCU present unfamiliar challenges. This is a story by Ralph D. Russo, who is an AP college football writer. Dateline Scottsdale, Arizona. Asked to consider what previous opponents were similar to Michigan, TCU's defensive players and coordinator mentioned Kansas State a lot. A bigger Kansas State. We see that they have a pretty huge O-line, Horned Frogs linebacker D. Winters said Tuesday. As for the Wolverines, they don't have much experience to draw upon when it comes to facing a defense like TCU's that uses three down linemen and three safeties. This is all new to us, Michigan offensive tackle Ryan Hayes said. Number two, Michigan brings its smash-mouth ways into the college football playoff, playoff semifinal on Saturday to face number three, TCU. It's tempting to boil the Fiesta Bowl matchup down to Big Ten power versus Big 12 speed, especially when the Wolverines have the ball. Tempting, but not entirely accurate. I think maybe it's an oversimplification, Michigan co-offensive coordinator Weiss said. For the second straight season, Michigan won the Joe Moore Award given to the best offensive line in the country. This season's group might be even better than last year's, which added center Olsegand Alwimi to a veteran group. The Virginia transfer won the Outland Trophy Best Interior Lineman and Remington Trophy this season. Aluwatimi tackles Hayes and Carson Barnhart and guards Zach Zinter and Trevor Keegan average 308 pounds. But what makes them different from even the best Big 12 lines is they are also long and rangy. The 6'3", Alatwimi, is the only one of five starters under 6'5". Offensive coach Sharon Moore is also Michigan's co-offensive coordinator now, handling play-calling duties with Weiss. The two were promoted after Josh Gaddis left for Miami following last season's playoff appearance by the Wolverines that ended in an Orange Bowl semifinal loss to Georgia. I think Moore does a really good job of knowing what our strengths are, Hayes said. It's great having him in our room. We get extra intricate detail of why are we doing this as a whole offense. He kind of lets us know what the whole offense is doing, and that helps us. Adding to all that beef up front, Michigan loves its big personnel packages. The Wolverines will regularly use 2-3, even the occasional 4 tight end formation. It is an offense Michigan coach Jim Harbaugh's mentor, Bo Schembechler, would be proud of. It's going to be quite a bit different from what we've gotten to see week in and week out, TCU defensive coordinator Joe Gillespie said. But I also feel like there's some differences that will bring to the table as well. The 3-3-5 defense TCU plays was born as a countermeasure to spread offenses that proliferated college football, especially the Big 12 in the 2000s and 2010s. Those offenses often abandon their tight end position altogether, instead going with four or five wide receivers. Ohio State dabbles in the 3-3-5, but for the most part, Michigan didn't see much of it this season. 
So it's really hard to watch the tape and say, okay, this will definitely work, but this won't, Weiss said about game planning for TCU. The Horned Frogs are not exactly undersized up front on defense. Nose guards, Damanik, Damanik, Williams, and Tymon Mitchell, both weigh in north of 315 pounds. But usually, one, only one of them is on the field at a time. All three of TCU's starting linebackers are listed at 230 pounds or more. And that's all the time we have for this reading of the Fort Dodge Messenger for this Thursday, December 29th. This being read to you is the Wednesday, December 28th edition here on IRIS, the Iowa Radio Reading Information Service for the Blind. This is your reader, Andrew Howe, filling in, saying thank you so much for listening today. It's been great to be with you. Have a good day and straight ahead.